So, good evening, everyone. It's interesting, it's sort of, a, I guess, a poignant moment in the retreat and also a poignant moment uh, for me because in just a few days, uh, I'll be going on a one-year retreat, sabbatical retreat, and uh, practicing and uh, outside of the United States and and it's been a process the last few months of saying, uh, you know, wrapping things up for that period. But it's just, I was realizing, I was like, oh, this is the last Dharma talk I'm going to give till 2015. <laughs> I was just thinking about you all and how much I've been so inspired. And, and it's just very sweet, you know, as a teacher on this retreat, it's always an honor to meet with people and, and share together these teachings, and to practice these teachings. You know, it's, it's just such a rare time to have this opportunity, isn't it? It's unique, right, to come together. There's only been three or four retreats in the country a year for communities of color to gather. And it's just really, it's just touching in so many ways. So I feel a certain tenderness of heart tonight, and I was thinking, what would be the most important things to talk about? What what do I want to share? And so I just thought I would just share from my own heart some stories and some of my own experiences and my own reflections on the Dharma. You know, the Dharma that, you know, we're lay people, right? And we're... Most of us live in urban communities or we're working. It's amazing when I read the interview sheets how many social workers. <laughs> like, of course, teachers, psychologists, helpers. You're all helping. And that touches me and that also gives me a lot of inspiration. You know, community activist. You're sitting amongst really beautiful people and I know you, you all haven't spoken to each other. Um, but it's, it's, again, it's such a privilege and it influences my own life a great deal to gather in community all the time. It's just, it's just a huge, and again, to sit in meditation and to heal together. I mean, that's really what we're doing, right? I know I say this all the time, that meditation centers are, I always say they're cosmic hospitals, you know, and, and we come and we check in. And sometimes we arrive like in an ambulance, kind of like, you know. <laughs> and we're just, oh, everything's falling apart, right? And we might be on the terrible breakup, or, you know, I can remember just, you know, my first retreat, Bonte was reminding me, and we were talking. He said, the story of your first retreat, so I just thought I would just share it. Some of you have heard it. Um, I was definitely in an ambulance getting to this retreat. Actually, I was 20, I think it was about 23, 24, maybe. It's about 17 years ago, something like that. And I had already been practicing some, but I didn't have a teacher. I was teaching myself through books. And I had already been studying psychology and philosophy. And I had heard about a, a retreat center where they gave you instructions and it was in silence. And... Um, I think I told this story last year. I, I was selling timeshare at this terrible place in Redwood City. It was a horrible job trying to talk people into buying 
Palm, you know, Palm Springs vacation. It was just the whole. They were just there to get these gifts, and so they would just say anything to get to the end. And we would try to be, get. It was kind of cat and mouse. Like, are they going to buy it? I want my little commission check. I need that, you know. And it was terrible. It was very depressing. I was living. Uh, I was in a relationship with someone, and, and uh, he and I just fought. We argued all the day, every day. It, seemed, it was terrible, you know, one of those kind of relationships. And we were living in East Oakland, and it's just this neighborhood that was just, everybody was fighting. Every, it was just, even our dog was fighting with other dogs. <laughs> and I would just feel like, this is just getting worse. I was terribly depressed and just crying all the time. And I, I got to do something to shift this. Uh, so I just, you know, left that job and somehow I got unemployment benefits and I saved up enough to pay for the retreat. And then, and then then a week before the retreat, did you notice this? Everything kind of gets even crazier, maybe the day before, like some kind of, I don't know. It's kind of like the hospital starting already. Like it's like whatever's coming up, it starts to get worse. And so, um, so I had to drive. I was in Oakland, but the retreat was in the desert, two hours outside of Los Angeles. And so it was basically one of those moments of very high drama where I'm leaving you, and I put all my stuff in the car. So I didn't even have anywhere to live after the retreat. You know? <laughs> and I was like, that's it. I just got to get there. And so for the next 13 hours, the day the retreat started, I'd left early in the morning. I basically cried nonstop. I didn't even know how I didn't get in a car accident because I was uh, chain smoking, drinking Mountain Dew, like <laughs> like 20 bottles. I don't know why. And, and then crying and was so worked up. By the time I got there, I just almost collapsed on the table. Like, I need help. This is bad. <laughs> And then I got help. That was the beautiful thing. It was like, it really was this, it was this, this huge awakening for me. It was, a, it was a major retreat. It was, it was 10 days. And so imagine that for 10 days. And um, I remember on the first night of the retreat, I didn't even know who taught the retreat. That's the funny thing. I didn't know it was Buddhist. I didn't know anything. They said, they give you instruction on meditation. Oh, there's vegetarian food. It's in silence, and that's I needed to not talk. I need to, I needed, you know, I was like nine one one in my mind, because I really felt like I was dying. Have you, you know, you feel like that in your life. It's like, but you mask it a lot. We ma- we we can mask that. That feeling is like something's dying. I I don't know what's going on. You know, nothing is really making me happy. You know, and and. I was concerned about that feeling of death. Like, this is, one shouldn't stay there too long, right? It's like, then we have to find some medicine, some type of healing in that state. And we usually do it, usually takes that before we have a breakthrough of some kind. So um, on the retreat, um, Jack Cornfield was leading it. Like I said, I didn't even know, you know, so I sat down. I remember on the, and it was a retreat for beginners. So, and that retreat was big. It was 150 people, right? All beginners. You know, they used to do that 10-day beginning. So, you know, it was really geared towards, you know, new people. And I remember on the first night, he sat down and he said, Oh, nobly born, remember who you are. And he was like quoting the Buddha. And it was just this 
like, oh, yeah, yeah, who am I? Like, yeah, where am I? Who am I? Yeah, there is something noble in there. Like, I knew that. Don't you all know that? You wouldn't be here if you didn't. You know there's this, like, beauty in there. But it's so obscured, right, a lot of the time. And it's like, how do I, how do I access that all the time, that, that part? So for that 10 days, I sat and I cried and I walked in the desert and it was really hot, you know. So I was just way out there just walking, you know, and sitting and like, just in it. Have you all felt like that a little bit? Just in it, you know. All the dramas, all the memories, all the fighting and all rising and passing, rising and passing, rising and passing, you know. And I just remember thinking, what is this experience called life? Like, what is this about? You know, because at that point, I felt like a very old person. It felt like, because I, you know, just, you know, we grow up, sometimes some of us may have that experience growing up and single mother and poverty and having exposed to certain things. You grow up fast, right? And you mature fast, but you take on the burdens of the world fast. That growing up has a certain price you pay, you know, and things traumas happen to you at an early age and you grow from that fast. Right? So you come so I remember I, I used to walk like this, just beaten down, right? Like, oh, how would I ever heal from all this? You know, there's so much sorrow. And that retreat gave me so much hope because there was a way that I could work with it. There was a way that I could be with it. Right? Because I was tired of trying all the tricks. Even then, I had gone through a lot, you know, because you live fast, you try everything. You live a life of, you know, drinking, you live a life of this, and especially in Los Angeles and Oakland, I used to move back and forth. So I'd already done a lot and experienced a lot. So I was ready for something new. Like, give me something new. What, what am I not seeing here? And so over that 10 days, I remember hearing all of the core teachings laid out, the foundations of mindfulness, the Four Noble Truths. And um, because I was so open, it went in in a really powerful way, right? As I was ready, actually, to hear it. I was ready for, for, to reflect on it. And so it was life-changing. And for some people, their first retreat is life-changing, and there's an opening there, and you, you hear things in a different way. And um, I was just ready for some peace. You know, I wanted the wars to stop. And I knew it wasn't the war outside of myself. That's something I did know at a very young age. Because I always used to tell my mother and tell other people, I have a thinking problem. Right? I, would, I would say that. They, and I would see people acting really harmful to each other. I would always say there's something wrong with their mind. You know, my father, I used to always say he, was, he had a lot of addiction problems and he, he just was volatile, right, and unhappy. And I always used to look at him, you know, when he would come and he, he wasn't really able to tend to his children because he was preoccupied. But I always would look at him and feel this sorrow, like he has a, something's wrong with his mind, right? Like, why can't he straighten his mind out in some way? And, um, and I used to even tell my mother, I told some people this, I, I would always say, I'd like to become a psychiatrist. Which a Dharma teacher, strangely, is similar. You know, it's like mind after mind. Okay, let's work this out. Can you be present? Like, 
take some space, go, you know, you're like working with the mind. What's arising in the mind? How, how do we meet this mind? So it reminds me a lot of this poem by Nyosho Ken Rinpoche, one of my favorite poems. Rest in natural great peace. Rest in natural great peace. This exhausted mind, beaten, helpless by karma and neurotic thoughts, like the relentless fury of the pounding waves and the infinite ocean of samsara. Rest in natural great peace. Well, this exhausted mind, beaten helpless. I'm sure some people have felt like they've been beaten helpless a little bit here and there on this retreat. It's important to see that, you know? You have to see kind of the depths of things on retreat. Sometimes people really think that coming to a retreat, you only get a lot of light, you know? And they, they approach a retreat, they'll, they'll come up to me and they'll say, Spring, I want to go on a meditation retreat. Uh, you know, and then I'll be filled with all this like light and energy, and you know, I'll be floating maybe. Like, like, I'll be like, it's a possibility. It could happen, but more likely, right? The real freedom comes from going into the underworld, <laughs> right? Like, so think about the Dharma. It's like we go to the roots of things. Right? We have to go down, down, down to where the very roots of the misperceptions are, the roots of the clinging, right? And we sort of pull them out, like these big roots, right, that are, that are creating suffering. And samsara is an interesting word, you know, because the Dharma is really based on this idea of samsara. Right, what is samsara? Samsara means so many different translations of it, but it means circle. One could say a circle, a wheel. One translation is endless wandering. Right? So endless wandering, wheel of suffering. So so basically when the Buddha had his awakening experience, what he saw, they say, in, in this night of enlightenment that he he awoke in three stages. Right? And he the truth was revealed to him in stages. And you'll notice this about your own mind. You know, that the truth reveals itself layer by layer, right? Even sitting here over many days, you're like, oh, yeah, I know something I didn't know last year, now, right? It's like, it's like this slow revealing, <laughs> gradual awakening, they call it. Some people awaken like that, Satori, but most people it's a gradual unfoldment because it's really all we can handle. Right? We only could take so much truth, right? You only could take so much before you go, I'm getting out of here, right? <laughs> if we could take more, we would sit here more, right? It's like, okay, okay, more present moment, more, you know, more rising, more passing, right? But then at some point we reach a threshold. Time out. <laughs> yeah, I need a break. I think that's, that's wise. But he had this reflection on his night of awakening where they said that he woke up to a 10,000-world system. 10,000 worlds, not just this world. Vast system of beings, right? Being born and passing away and being born and passing away and being born and passing away and being born. All of them looking for happiness, not finding happiness, creating the causes of unhappiness and Reliving the same thing over and over and over. 
over and over, we're on the wheel, right? And we can't get off this wheel. And that wheel is samsara. It's the nature of samsara. It's just wandering. And I, could, I saw that in my own life, even at a young age. I'm always looking for something. This is it. It's the new thing, right? Get this, try that, do this. And I think sometimes that's okay. It's not that that's not okay to try new things. But we have this idea that if we try that, that's the answer to it. That's the key. Like, this is going to be happiness. This one. This, these 5,000 things didn't work, but this one, I'll get to that new job, I'll get that apartment, I'll get the house, I'll get the, I'll get, I'll get the, I'll try the, and then we, we get it for a while. It's kind of like what Don Ruan was saying, and he gets the little Buddha statue he, he wanted from Meninjirji. And it's like, oh no, now I have all these problems, right? <laughs> kind of like, be careful what you want, be careful what you ask for. <laughs> then you have to work with it. But what they don't give us is lasting happiness. So where is it to be found? That's the question. That's what I had. Well, where is lasting happiness then? I was like, where, why are we doing this? I can remember asking on my first retreat, what's the point of all this? Like, people just come here and they suffer? That's cruel, right? I don't know if I think, believe this. This can't be the only way. And I had a real passion when I heard that there was actually a path, that there was enlightened beings. There was people who had actually freed themselves from suffering. And they, they got out of samsara. They awoke out of samsara, out of this wheel, right? And they, they became free. And I think that that archetype is really interesting. It's sort of like the matrix, Right? The movie caught on because it resonated with some deeper universal truth, right? We're all, it's like, wow, we can wake up. And the Buddha didn't invent the way out. He didn't invent it. It's an ancient path. It's like there's this path there, right? They're using this, this is a parable of a, of a imagine there's a magic city and there's a path to get to this magic city. And within the walls of this city, there's happiness, lasting happiness, and beings there who are experiencing lasting happiness. But the path to that place is obscured. It's like if we left all the trails all around here, we did nothing to clear them every year, eventually they would disappear. Right? Somebody has to kind of make effort. The caretakers make effort, re-clear the path, clear the high path, clear the... Right? So people can see it, they can walk on it, Right? And they can enjoy it. So the Buddha, he didn't invent that path. He just came here again and re-cleared an ancient one. One that maybe the beginning of time that millions of beings have found. But it's elusive in our culture, this path. Because so many other people are going, no, no, go this way. <laughs> oh yeah, that one. Yeah, okay, let's get on that one. We ride it. It's like, wait, the end, we don't get the pot of gold. Like, this is suffering, right? We get off that one. Oh, yeah, everyone, this is the new one. Go there. It could be professional life, more degrees, money, liposuction. I don't know. Whatever <laughs> it is that people really put a hope in. Like, this is really going to be it. It actually produces sorrow thinking of that. Right? Because I see that. You know, and so my compassion... So the Buddha had compassion that night when he saw that. He's like, oh my gosh, I, like, nobody knows the path. I've got to show, how do we, here's, let's clear it. And then maybe some can understand it. Some who are ready, because he almost didn't teach. 
there was a moment where he said, no one's going to get this. I'll just stay under the tree, right? And then they said, this, the legend is some, some angels and like celestial beings came down and said, please, there actually are human beings who will get it, who actually are ready, right? Who want to see the truth. So you can see this wheel all the time. And I always say life is school. Like we're in the school of life. Here we are. Those who are paying attention, like pass the exam, go on to the next. Otherwise, we repeat. And that repetitive nature I saw when I was young. Didn't, don't you see that? Like, wait, haven't I done this? You know, you say, like doing the same thing again and again, expecting different results is insanity. But that's all any humans all do all the time. Like, more wars. Okay, where has wars gotten us, folks? Okay, let's have another one. This will be the last one. <laughs> right? More greed. More. It's like, I look around, it's like, everyone's doing the same thing. So the Buddha's offering something different, you know? And you don't have to look at the Buddha and feel devotion as, a, as like, a, like you worship. You can look at the, the Buddha as a great doctor. Like, this person can help me with my mind. The reflections are so accurate. It's so detailed. <laughs> it's like, wow, he was really observing, right? How suffering arises, how it passes. So that's really what we want is lasting happiness. That's what I want. And um, every few years I get this really strong desire like for freedom, like this urge rises up. It usually starts with these gospel songs, I've noticed. And it turns into kind of like Buddhist chants in a gospel style. A little bit like how Broderick sings a little bit. Right? It's probably why I like him and I wanted you to be here so much. <laughs> and then it's like, okay, I'm ready to break out of the prison. It's like I galvanize some energy. You know, it's like we're in this prison and we feel it. We feel it. It's like, you know, we grab the walls and shake it a little bit. Right? Like, what is this? And we feel oppressed by it in this. You know, we want something, we know that there's something more than what's being offered on some level. You know, there's, there's a path. We feel it. It's intuitive, right? It's, and it's inside of us. That's the interesting thing. So one of my favorite um, Hopi creation stories, I read this a lot. So the creator gathered all of creation and said, I want to hide something from the humans until they're ready for it. It is the realization that they create their own reality. The eagle said, Give it to me, I will take it to the moon. The creator said, No, one day they'll go there and find it. The salmon said, I will bury it at the bottom of the oceans. The creator said, No, they will go there too. The buffalo said, I will bury it out on the great plains. The Creator said, They will cut into the earth and find it even there. Grandmother Mole, who lives in the breast of Mother Earth and who has no physical eyes but sees everything with spiritual eyes, said, Put it inside of them. And the Creator said, It is done. So we're always looking out. That's one of our the big things. That's what everybody teaches us too. Like the path is like, it's never inward, right? It's never looking in. It's always out. It's always this constant projection of rearranging. It's like we're in a prison 
And everyone says, oh, you want to be happy here, decorate it, right? Here's some <laughs> curtains. Like this is what we've always done, right? We decorate, <laughs> right? We get stuff. <laughs> we stick it in, we take it out, we stick it in again, right? It's like, but wait, does anyone ever open the door, you know? And sometimes people do, you know? A lot of people do. So we, so I, in my own life, I, I get those inklings and then I go on really long retreats and I have at it for a while. <laughs> and then I come back and integrate that. You know, I'm just a yogi. Just being a teacher, you're just a practitioner like everyone else. You're learning like everyone else. You know, none of us claim to be enlightened beings. We're just here doing what we can to be of service, you know, and to impart some faith because I do have faith now in this. You know, some, and somehow we, we have to have that faith in order to set, you have to actually believe that you can get out of the prison. That's the first step in getting out, right? You have to believe it's possible. A couple of years ago, I was, uh, with a good friend of mine, we were, I, I think I told the story, in D.C., we were, we were going to 10-day teachings with His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. And um, it was like this big ritual, Kala Chakra for world peace, where they build a mandala, the monks build that huge mandala. And basically what the Dalai Lama is doing is they're building this massive mandala that represents the entire universe, and then they're blessing it for days and days and days, trying to lift it up. Like, bless this thing, you know, all the universe. <laughs> It's really beautiful. Most people don't really know what's going on, and we just sit there like, we're not really conscious of it, like the meaning of any, we're like, this is sweet, yeah, well, yeah, it's great, right? (laughs) And he's saying all these things, but we don't really understand much of it. He's like, yeah, just be kind. We get that part. Kindness, have a good heart. You know, that's really all you need to know on some level, I suppose. But actually, there's much more going on, right? And, um... And so I was, had this seat, and I was sitting in front of the jumbotron. So it was like, you know, the stage is over here, and then there's massive TV, like... And so I, I had life that seat, because I could just see, you know, just stare at it and look, and then look down. And at one point in the middle of the teaching, he stopped with this kind of ferocity and was like, you do believe enlightenment is possible, don't you? You know, there was like 50,000 people in the Verizon Center, and it just got quiet. <laughs> It's like, if you don't, you have to believe this. You don't have to be a monk. Do you get that you can be a regular human being? I'm just a human being too. I'm a monk, but I'm a human being first. Like, do you, you have, and somehow it went in, like, do I really think this? Am I just talking about this all the time? But something went in a little deeper. You know, that produced more faith. Because of our tendency towards self-hatred, we doubt even that beauty that we have, right? We don't think, oh, not me, right? We don't, we don't really think that because and it's not just communities of color having self-hatred. It's an epidemic of the West. It's a poison of the, it's like one of the things that we have to uproot. It's chronic. It's in every, every even the kids I work with here, I'll think, oh, okay, this child should have everything going well. Their parents are meditators, Live in Marin, and then I'll be like, "Oh my God, they're suicidal. They have anorexia. They're in the, oh, it's happening. They're already sort of ingesting this this 
this, you know, lie. It's basically lies. But it operates in the mind very powerfully. So we have to uproot that. That's a really big one. So compassion and love become more meaningful. So they become very meaningful for me, these qualities of kindness and compassion. They become, as I open more and more to the suffering of things, and that's really what the Buddha said. So it's like, what do you do with all this? Open to it. (laughs) The last thing we usually want to do. Like, open to it? Open to it. Oh, okay. Well, you only can do that if you, have a, if you have a lot of compassion, really, to open to the depths. So here's what His Holiness says, um, Dalai Lama says from, this is from his book, Ethics for a New Millennium, which I can't believe he wrote 14 years ago. Um, so he says, compassion is what makes our lives meaningful. This is what makes our lives meaningful. It is the source of lasting happiness and joy. And it is the foundation of a good heart. The heart of one who acts out of desire to help others. Through kindness, through affection, through honesty, through truth and justice towards all others, we ensure our own benefit. This is not a matter for complicated theorizing. It is a matter of common sense. There's no denying that, con- that consideration of others is worthwhile. There's no denying that our happiness is inextricably bound up with the happiness of others. There's no denying that if societies suffer, we ourselves suffer. Nor is there any denying that the more our hearts and minds are afflicted with ill will, the more miserable we become. Thus, we can reject everything else. Religion, ideology, all received wisdom. But we cannot escape the necessity of love and compassion. Right? It's like at the foundation of things. So this becomes our practice in some way, this cultivation of this quality. I really feel that it's the medicine for our time too. This love, this kindness, that it's not just uh, corny. You know, I think Don Juan used that word last night. It's corny, <laughs> right? And that's kind of how it is at first. It's like, oh, these hippies up here. <laughs> Let's get back to the real stuff, right? Let's be really, you know, solemn. And it has a beauty to that, actually. It's good to be solemn at times and practice. But I'm not sure if Westerners are wired for certain types of things. I actually think due to our, our makeup and our psychology, we actually need more love and compassion. Because when I travel in Asia, I notice that Asian people, especially like Tibetans, just being around the Tibetan community, they have a lot of confidence. They think, I have a precious human birth. I get to practice Dharma. I feel bad for you guys in the West. And we would feel bad for them, thinking, oh, this poor monk, I don't know if I would want that kind of life, right? (laughs) They have confidence. Even as children, they don't have this view that we have. (laughs) Therefore, this faith is rooted in this like, I'm a one, this is a wonderful opportunity. You know? And they don't even understand self-hatred. They're like, why would you think like that? Like, that's madness. Like, why would you beat yourself up? Practice. <laughs> we're like, we're trying to practice. This is what arises, right? This is the nature. So, um, 
you know, this is why I think these practices have really taken off. And so I just want to talk especially a little bit about the Brahma Viharas because these are some of the practices that we can really take and we can really utilize. So I wanted to read this other quote. Um, it's another quote. This is um, from the Buddha. Compassion or karuna is usually the transcend, you know, transcendental heart of the Buddha's teachings. It's a, a really important. So it's reputed... Um, that Ananda, the Buddha's cousin and his attendant, so there's lots of the texts of the Pali Canon were memorized, well, the teachings were memorized a lot by Ananda, and then they were written down later. So Ananda was always asking the Buddha questions. It was like his sidekick. Uh, my cousin said, like, Batman and Robin? I'm like, yeah, something like that. <laughs> I was giving him these little teachings, you know. So Ananda says to the Buddha, would it be true to say that the cultivation of loving-kindness and compassion is part of our practice? To which the Buddha replied, No, it would not be true to say that the cultivation of loving-kindness and compassion is part of our practice. It would be true to say that the cultivation of loving-kindness and compassion is all of our practice. So this is like this quality. It's all of that. It manifests. So it's important to just think about that as we as we go about our way here. This quality of kindness, friendliness. You know. You know when you think about the nature of samsara and you think about what people go through, I can't help but be kind. <laughs> you know because. I hear so many stories all the time, you know, stories of my own life and the stories of others. It's like, what else are you going to do on the planet with your time here? Really think about it. I really assess your goals. That's something to do on retreat at moments. Like, what's the most meaningful thing I could do with my life here? Like Dharma Ruan was saying last night, it's not going to be your job in the end. It's going to be, did I love well? (laughs) Was I kind to people? Did I care about people? And as people get closer to death and they don't have those reflections, if they feel that they've been unkind, it's pain, right? It's regret, right? Or they feel like they have to make things right in the last part of their life. And some can do that and die with peace. But we can, we can practice this now, right? This kind of this way of being toward ourselves and others. So the practice of metta is, is, is massive, in fact, there's, you know, one of my new projects is I want to start a retreat center where I just focus on meta retreats, you know, for urban people. And just 10-day meta retreats, back to back, year-round. <laughs> you know, putting them in, taking them out, put them in, take them out. <laughs> like, let's, let's all clean up together, get well together, right? Because the meta retreats are so purifying, you know, as I, as I told you, uh, I think I did the meta practice with you all the other day that it purifies three things. One is hatred. So anybody who does meta intensively, wow, they encounter some fierce demons. <laughs> and they're not the demons out there, they're here. <laughs> they're ours. We've been feeding them, right? And uh, 
So that can be a challenge at times, right? It's like, oh, it's such a purification. The Dharma is a path of purification. So when you encounter things, you have to understand, this is what's purifying. There's a certain, a certain period I feel joyful even in suffering, intense suffering, because it's like the joy of purification. Like I'm getting through it. I'm not so afraid anymore. Like, okay, wow, this is big. Okay, here it comes. It's another demon. Oh, I've been with demons before, right? You send them metta, and they evaporate. <laughs> they can't hang out too long. You know, they don't exist. It's just energy. And also, we, we encounter this numbness. And that numbness is really pervasive. It's like we can't feel. Right? Dhammaran talked about that last night, too. Like this disconnect. We can't feel anymore. So we lose our intuitive wisdom. Right? We lose our, like, indigenous wisdom. Right? That wisdom that people, and even the cultures, and I'm writing about this now, the Western culture, we, we beat down the indigenous wisdom side of ourselves physically, mentally, societally, in books, movies, right? And so we lose something tremendous in that, right? This knowing that our ancestors had, knowing that certain people who lived on the earth had, right? They could feel things like the animals could feel the tsunami, you know, it's like we lose this ability to, to wake up with the rhythm of the sun. You know, we lose to feel. You know, some of you, I love that people come to Spirit Rock and the nature is so important. Haven't you noticed this feeling, the rhythm of nature here? Right? You just walk. It's like something, you feel that wisdom waking up. It's like you start listening, you see the crows. You know, people say they come here and they have a mystical experience with the horse down, you know, at the barn down there or the turkey. They're like, yeah, I got this really powerful transmission, right? <laughs> they wouldn't have said that before they came on retreat. They wouldn't even be thinking about a turkey. They'd be texting out, you know, like... But you see how it wakes up something? Right? It wakes up this naturalness, right? It's like, hello, hello, wake up, everyone. Like, Earth is talking. This is alive. You're alive. Wake up to your connection to that. We're, like, we're so interconnected. And until we do that, the earth won't be safe. Because unless we feel our connection, we'll keep destroying. We won't, we won't get it. We won't feel it. Not deeply. We'll feel it emotionally. We'll get anxiety. We'll read the science reports and go, oh no. Right? But until we feel that we're a part of that, right? Then we can start to shift it. So... That numbness coming down is a part of dharma. It's like veils coming down, you know? It's, it's a part of our um, un, undoing. I like this poem by Kabir, the great mystic. He's a poet. He writes, The guest is inside you and also inside me. You know the sprout is hidden inside the seed. We're all struggling, and none of us have gone far. Let your arrogance go and look around inside. The blue sky opens out farther and farther. The daily sense of failure goes away. The damage I have done to myself fades. A million suns come forward with light when I sit firmly awake in this world. Million suns come forward with light. 
the damage I have done to myself fades. And that's what we do by sitting here, it's magical, like the damage we've done fades, it starts to wear itself out. The Buddha knew this, you know, that's what the foundations of mindfulness are for. Pay attention, be in your body, let go of your emotions, let go of the neurotic clinging. (laughs) Feel the connection, right? And the damage starts to go away, right? Our delusion goes away. The Buddha didn't say that this path will be stress reduction. He had a bigger claim than that. He said, this is the cessation of all suffering. That's a much higher claim. Permanent happiness, right? Not, you'll have a great night. (laughs) We're talking about permanent, you know, the path to the end of suffering. That's the third noble truth, right? There is this stress. We can't deny that. We see suffering everywhere if we look around. We can't deny that. That's in, in us, outside of us. Right? We see that. The root, clinging. There's a cause. Clinging, holding on, false beliefs, crazy perceptions. Clinging, clinging, clinging to everything. Clinging to our hatred, our fear, our stories. There's a lot of stories in the mind, huh? <laughs> All the soap operas. I always say they're like telenovelas. Nine o'clock, one life to live. It's always like me and all the drama. And then me in the middle... There's a funny quote by Mark Twain. He said, the worst things that ever happened, the worst things that ever happened in life, like, never happened or something? I, I think I, I messed up the quote. <laughs> like, the worst things that happened to me in my life never happened. Basically, his thoughts were all, you know, and I mean, we could scare ourselves half to death right here by, you know, by a story in the mind. It's to keep seeing that level over and over. But we wake up to that through practice. And I guess that's the heart of this talk, is that there is some effort that has to be made, right? You have to be willing to put yourself here on the cushion and look. And that doesn't mean this is your only practice, but it means one has to be willing to investigate truth, right? Investigate the truth, and you have to do it for yourself. I can't tell you. The Buddha couldn't actually enlighten people. That was the interesting thing. Only they could do that. Right? There's no teacher that you're going to meet who's going to go, Shakti Pot, you're now free, all of you, right? <laughs> we kind of hope that a little bit. Like, I'm going to go see this guru. I'm going to go see this guru. I'm going to go here. I'm going to go there. People feel bliss for a few days, and then what comes back? The stories that they produce. Right? It's like the great thing about this path is you're your own doctor. You can take the, you can take the medicine of mindfulness awareness that's freeing you don't have to wait for somebody to save you you don't have to crawl on your knees across the desert begging either right you just have to be willing to to be present you don't have to be good enough you don't have to do anything you don't have to be a certain type of person what you just have to be willing to do is look investigate and practice we have to practice these ways because um it's kind of the, the, the mainstream culture. We, we, we're swimming in that, you know? And um, we have to counteract that all the time. That's why often we need to keep coming to the hospital, right? And people, I was at a meeting with someone today who was talking about that. It's like, so you can't, we come here and retreat, we get all 
great, right? At the end of the retreat, people run down the hill. Yeah, so great. And then we go back. And there's like, ah, and then like eight months, maybe a year later, we're like on the ambulance coming back here. (laughs) And then we get better again. We get better again. We get better, right? It's like organic food, walking in nature, meditation, yoga. It's always going to heal you, by the way, okay? It's always going to do it, right? So then, and I used to do that all the time, back and forth I go, back and forth I go, back and forth. But over time, what I noticed was the gaps, you know, it's like, I was getting better and better and better, better and better and better. And then my life began to reflect this place more. See, before I used to go home from retreat and I'd be petrified. Because I'd be like, oh no, I live with these roommates. They're playing drinking games all night. What am I going to do? I can't live with them. It's all a hot mess. I don't know what's going on, you know. But we're like that in the beginning. And then when we we get wiser and wiser, it's like, our life begins to reflect our reality. Our, our living reflects our inner. You know, the temple begins to manifest. <laughs> right? The temple you build in your heart. Suddenly, there's altars appearing in your home. Right? Beautiful sacred objects. You know, you, maybe you get rid of a, your TV. You start to like become more present. Right? You say, "Let me sit a little bit more." Right? And then it's not such a 911 issue. You come on retreats because actually there's wisdom that you're interested in, not like you're on the deathbed moment. Right? You're like, you're coming at a different level. Like, well, ah, let's continue this. Like, nah, things are happening. Wisdom is developing, right? Freedom, I'm feeling more free. So that becomes the interest, right? So at different times, we, we work with that. So the numbness, I want to make sure I get emphasize this practice of compassion and metta. So this numbness we have to wake up from drop by drop, moment by moment, we offer love to ourselves. Sometimes the metta practice is so simple it's unbearable. Like you know, it's like you just say, May I be happy. <laughs> right? You just offer kindness. This was also very freeing to me on my first retreat. So this became one of my core practices. When I, in that 10-day yucca retreat, I learned metta. And I was so happy. You know why? Because I didn't have to depend on anyone else to be like, Spring, I love you. You know? I could do it. I was like, you mean I could cultivate this for myself? Because, you know, you, you depend on other people. People are fickle. <laughs> right? That's a very shaky refuge. Sometimes they want to say, I love you all day, and next day they're like, I don't want to right now, right? And then what are you going to do? Right? You better have your own foundation. Otherwise, you suffer, right? You only can get it outside for so long, and it's not reliable. You have to have that foundation, like this well from within. It doesn't matter what your size is, your background is, your orientation is, you can cultivate this. It doesn't matter what society says about you. Doesn't matter, you know, if you're two spirited, doesn't matter what it is, what size, it doesn't matter. Like, you can cultivate that. Nobody can take that from you. Nobody can take wisdom from you. This is like really powerful. That's what the Buddha is saying. You, you can cultivate this for yourself, right? You, you don't have to depend on anyone. Famous teaching where the Buddha says, be a lamp onto yourself. He gave his teaching when he was dying. 
And um, it's a beautiful sutta, Parinibbana Sutta, where the Buddha's basically three last months of his life told everybody, I'm going to be dying in three months. Some people believed him, some people didn't. Right? They're like, oh, okay. It's like a great redwood tree, you know. It's never going to fall down. One day they'll all fall. Right? So, as the Buddha was dying, here's another Ananda story, right? So Ananda asked, who is going to be our teacher after you die? This is what the Buddha says. Ananda, be lamps onto yourselves. Be refuges onto yourselves. Take yourself no external refuge. Hold fast to the truth as a lamp. Hold fast to the truth as a refuge. Look not for a refuge in anyone besides yourselves. And those Ananda who either now or after I'm dead shall be a lamp unto themselves, shall betake themselves as no external refuge, but holding fast to the truth as their lamp, holding fast to the truth as their refuge, shall not look for refuge to anyone else besides themselves. It is they who shall reach to the very topmost heights. Right? So he's saying, be a lamp. Like you're, it's, it's kind of like it's going to come down to you. <laughs> right? And you have the capacity. This is the beauty. You know, we are the creators. Like, we're the creators, so we're the ones that can end it. You know, it's the, it's the Hopi creation story. It's inside us. And that's the best place it could be because we're not, we're not dependent on anything. So it's the only place it could be. So we practice metta, we say these, you know, we cultivate this quality of compassion, of love. It grows inside of us, and then it's very easy for us to love others. We feel safe when we have a lot of love, right? We're not shaky. It's like there's no cracks in the ground, right? We're solid, and, 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 and we go through life happier, not a lot of doubt. Our practice gets better. Because we're able to meet the difficulties. We're like, oh yeah, this story again. Oh yeah, that. Oh yeah, this is terror. But, you know, I've been with terror. You know, let's be with it. Oh, I've been with this illusion. Things start speeding up. I mentioned that a little bit, right? Our boat's upright and we're going, right? We don't, not that we never get, you know, capsized. But not like we used to, (laughs) And it's a lot easier, right? It's a lot more, okay, we're steady, upright. And the compassion, too, it's this quality of caring. You know, we care. Be careful. There's sometimes people fall into this idea that um, they only see one truth. They think, okay, it's all empty. And there's two truths in Dharma, two. Conventional truth and ultimate truth. Conventional truth says that we are, we are, okay, conventionally speaking, we'll call this being here a spring. And here I am giving a talk, and it's, you know, 821, and we're at this place we call Spirit Rock. You see, these are concepts. We'll call this a bell, right? We'll say that's a bell, and this is a cup. This is, that's conventional, right? That exists on a conventional level. On the ultimate level, this cup I was telling someone this today. If we were, to, if a neuroscientist came and looked very closely, it's just moving parts, <laughs> right? There's atoms and, and, and flux. Everything's in flux. I exist here as elements only. Something's aware, but it's not what I would call a spring, 
right? It appears. Ta-da, you appear. Ta-da. There's something real to that. How do I know it's real? Because if I fell down right now, it would hurt. <laughs> that would be a legitimate, <laughs> that would be something real. Although on the ultimate level, we don't, right? In the way we think we do. There's nothing, you know. So I raise, the reason I bring that up is sometimes we can fall into those, you know, sometimes people fall into the ultimate reality and go, well, everything is everything. Why bother about the polar bears, you know? It's just, it's, a, it's all impermanent. You know, that's not helpful, right? And then negate that this conventional reality that, hey, someone needs help here, right? <laughs> you need help too. We need, you know, it's like we need to tend to it. But holding always the big view. You see? It's like we hold both. If you only have the conventional reality, then you're caught in all the telenovelas. You never step back and see, wait, this is empty, right? This vast space, 10,000 world system. We don't see that yet. But, you know, it's big. all you have to do is watch a program on the universe to go, wow, this whole thing is bigger than what I, I know. Right? It's like, fast. You know? So we expand our view. Right? And we don't hold on to either one at this stage. We balance that, you know, together. So be compassionate to yourself. There's really, and with others... We practice this all the time, right? If you, something hurts, incline your mind, even if you're suffering for one moment, incline your mind towards tenderness. That's how you practice it. People often don't know. And I say, okay, take your hand and hold your other hand in it. Right? So you have a pain. Something's painful. It's your heart feels broken. Learn to like, comfort yourself like that. Right? Like, I care about this suffering. Compassion is care. If you care about yours, you can easily care and understand the rest of the world. If you can care about your mind, it, it'll, it, it gets stronger for others. This is very powerful, just to tell you a little story about com- the power of compassion. I was um, on a retreat a few years ago. That's probably why I'm a little nervous about this retreat coming up. There's a lot of memories of that one. And, and I spent, it was a five-month retreat in Crestone, Colorado, and I spent... Uh, three months in a cabin alone. That was the first time I'd ever done anything like that. And, you know, being from an urban community, I, I wasn't that naturey. I I longed to be. So, like, that tested me. It's like outhouse, propane, you know, it was like, okay, I can do this. Like, I can navigate, you know, and I, I just, and when I went to the cabin, I was imagining having, like, you know how we imagine things? Like, I have all these beautiful moments with the earth and, you know, and, no one would be around to bug me, you know, I don't either. it was so epic, oh my gosh. <laughs> but this sorrow started to happen, a huge, and I, I, for a while I was like, this doesn't feel like normal sorrow, you know, having been around a lot, like, I don't know what's going on here, and it just got bigger, and it was like some ancestral sorrow from 10,000 years coming straight through as a purification, right? And so this was hours and hours of just death, of sorrow. And I remember thinking, well, I'm not going to leave, but I need help terribly. I need help. I don't know how to be with this because I, I didn't have a teacher. I thought, I'll teach myself, right? So I just had a few Dharma books, no cell phone, no nothing, no, you know, just practicing. And um, 
I just started to call on compassion every day because I thought this is the only thing that'll get through, that'll help me. So in addition to feeling all the sorrow, at night I would feel terror because I was alone in the cabin. And so also the fear of being, I don't know, I think it was just because I was an African-American woman alone. And there was only like maybe rednecky people miles around and, you know, and I'd be like, any moment I was prepared to be just attacked and killed, you know? So all day I cried and all night I was just on guard and I was like, and it was like this terror and I kept trying to rationalize, like I live in East Oakland. This is way worse than here. Like there's nobody around. And, but it, you know, the mind, right? I, it was like primal. So that was three months. And had I not called on compassion, I would never have made it. And then I felt like compassion came like a warrior. And I just started to do bows on my altar to compassion. I was like, I bow to you. Please never leave me. Because <laughs> it was like I was able to endure all of that and, and, and be with myself all night. And also to, to sleep, the only way I could get any sleep. I wasn't sleeping much already. My mind just became awake you know, in a way that you, it just didn't go off. It was just present. So um, I used to, to get sleep. I would put these uh, pillows at this tiny little single bed, and I would put all stuff, all these pillows behind me, then my Zabuton and Zafu, and then I would sink down like this, and I would imagine they were these giant bosoms, and then like of Mother Earth, and then I would sink in like this, and then I only way I could sleep is I imagine these big black arms coming around me like this, and then I and then I could kind of sleep for a few hours because I'd be like I'm protected by compassion, right? But I was evoking it moment by moment, and it was so powerful. Like that was I was invoking a great mother, whose energy we need right now so badly. Like, you can call on this compassion. I, I, later, I just started telling everyone, you could call on this really great compassion, trust me, right, for yourself. And any, any situation is there, right? The Buddha called on it the night of his own awakening. He was being attacked ferociously, right? And he was just metta. He just put out metta, and all the weapons turned to flowers. There's power in these qualities. These are not corny. <laughs> this is like warrior stuff. Right? True compassion, you know, true kindness, true unconditional love. So we practice these. These grow in us on retreat. So I want to just end this talk with um, just a poem that I like, that I think illustrates things. Uh, and just also just, just praising everyone for being here, because I know you, all of you have had these warrior moments, at least for one or two moments on this retreat, where it was like, okay, I'm done, I can't take it. <laughs> right? I can't take another more tear or another being angry. You know, we meet, we meet this threshold, and then we go beyond it, right? We're like, it's, it changes, you know? Just to say after that retreat, something got freed up in me that was unbelievable. There was a lightness after that in my being. Right? It was a purification that when that heaviness went, it was like and also a confidence came. Like, wow, I can endure something here. Right? That was sort of a warrior energy. So this poem speaks to that. Called Unconditional by Jennifer Wellwood. She's an ecologist, teacher, writer. She writes, willing to 
experience aloneness, I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fear, I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to my loss, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end. Each condition I flee from pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me and becomes itself transformed into its radiant jewel-like essence. I bow to the one who has made it so, who has crafted this master game, to play it as purest delight, to honor its form, true devotion. So thank you all. We'll just sit for about one moment. And may we dedicate all the merit of this day today, all the goodness that has arose in our practice. May we dedicate this goodness to the healing of our ancestors, our family, and all nations. walking and then we'll be back for evening with chanting and thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and dharma seed please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate